0: Hello, and welcome to this webinar on Missing Ingredients in Diaspora Engagement, Destination Country Policies and Integration. My name is Kathleen Newland, and I'm a senior fellow and co-founder of the Migration Policy Institute. Rather than the usual focus on what countries of origin can do to engage their diasporas in development, we're going to look at two things that are not so often part of the discussion. One is the efforts of development cooperation agencies in countries of settlement to work with diasporas, and the other is the relationship between the integration of diaspora populations in destination countries and their ability to contribute to development in their countries of origin. Before we get started on the substance of our discussion, let me go through just a few housekeeping details. If you have any technical problems during the webinar, please send an email to events at migrationpolicy.org and we will try to help. The discussion will refer to uh, research papers from MPI and Prio. The links to the Prio papers are available on your screen now and were given in the invitation you received. MPI resources on migration and development, including the forthcoming paper I'll be discussing today, can be found on our website at migrationpolicy.org. We will also post these links in the chat function. I'd like to thank the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research for its support of the work we're about to present, and particularly to thank uh, Ms. Leila Erdos from the ministry for her enthusiastic support for this project. We will have an open discussion after our panelists have spoken. Please type your questions into the Q&A box uh, on your Zoom screen, and we will get through as many as time allows. It will be helpful if you address your question to a specific member of the panel. Okay. Uh, To help us understand the missing pieces of diaspora engagement, we're very lucky to have a panel of distinguished researchers and experienced practitioners. Leading us off will be Mr. Grunde Kreken olmaland State Secretary for Integration in the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research. I will then present some research we've been doing at MPI on how countries of destination have included diasporas in development cooperation. Marta Bivand Erdal, the research director of the social dynamics department at PRIO, will then take us through PRIO's recent research on the links between immigrant integration and development. The research and analysis that Marta and I present will then get a reality check from two practitioners. Jibril Fall is a director of GK Partners, a social enterprise advisory group based in London. He's also a founding director of the African diaspora development platform ADEPT and a professor of practice at the London School of Economics. Kristin Viren-Strom is senior advisor to Caritas Norway, one of Norway's major NGOs, which works extensively on immigrant integration in Norway as well as on international development and humanitarian response. It's now my great pleasure to turn the discussion over to State Secretary Almeland. Mr. Almeland, you hold the integration portfolio at the Ministry of Education and Research. And as a member of parliament from Oslo, Norway's most diverse city, you are a member of the Standing Committee on Family and Cultural Affairs. We're delighted to have you with us and the floor is yours.
1: Thank you so much. And let me first express my appreciation for being here today and thank the Migration Policy Institute and the Peace Research Institute of Oslo for giving me the opportunity to participate in this very important webinar. We highly value the expertise and the efforts put into the reports that are being presented here today. There is little existing research on the connections between immigration integration in in host societies and immigrants or diaspora, participation in development efforts in countries of origin. Also, how these connections are in relation to states' policies in the respective policy fields of integration and development. Your reports are groundbreaking in that they add knowledge to an area with very sparse information. One of the Norwegian government's main projects is to strengthen our national efforts for integration of immigrants in our society. The overall aim of Norway's integration policy is to increase immigrants' participation in working life and in society in general. The Norwegian welfare society is built on trust, cohesion, minor disparities and opportunities for all. To protect this, we must make sure we have a community with room for diversity and respect for the basic values and norms on which our society is built. We must prevent segregation and promote social cohesion. This is important for security, uh, securing the sustainability of our society. Therefore, the Norwegian government presented an integration st- strategy that is ongoing from 2019 until 2022, with multiple efforts to increase integration efforts. One of the measures in our strategy is an aim to investigate how national and international cooperation between civil society, immigration groups, the private sector, and civil society organization can uh, be improved. The link between migration, uh, development assistance, and development have been put on the agenda in, uh, in international fora. Among other things, there is a focus on the possibilities for strengthening cooperation between civil society the private sector and diaspora in development cooperation in countries of origin. As regards uh, Norwegian development works, we know that it is decisive with updated information about the country and the area where we work. Diaspora in Norway has good knowledge about countries of origin. NORAD, the Norwegian Agency for Development Cooperation, is responsible for financial support to civil society organizations in development work. NORAD encourages all organizations, also diaspora organizations, to apply for support to projects from relevant schemes. Small organizations are recommended to cooperate with larger and experienced organizations when applying. To strengthen local knowledge and participation in helping those in most need, NORAD requires that supported organizations co-cooperate with local partners. With new technologies and increased competence, local partner organizations are increasingly important, according to NORAD. Ongoing international efforts, known as the Shift the Power movement, aim at increased influence for actors of the global south. We are positive with respect to more equal partnerships between organizations in development work. As regards the support for civil society organizations working for integration in Norway, the Norwegian government supports various uh, integration initiatives through different types of grants. However, we believe that if we are to succeed in our efforts to strengthen integration here in Norway, we need to acknowledge the role of civil society in integration work. One of the essential parts of this acknowledgement is aiming for higher participation in civil societies for immigrants and their children living here in Norway. A civil society that represents diversity is a strength and a sign of strength for the whole of society. The Norwegian government is therefore currently working on a strategy to strengthen the role of civil society for integration. I am therefore very pleased that also Caritas uh, Norway and ADAPT are here today, and I am looking forward to hearing more of their experiences and views on both international development work and national efforts of, uh, for integration. This seminar is, uh, is a good response to the need for knowledge about the various forms of participation from immigrants in societies where they live, how government policies play out, or not, <laughs> and most important, how we can connect the dots for a better understanding of the role that civil society engagement has in various policy fields such as development work and integration. Therefore, I once again uh, thank you, and I look forward to an interesting seminar.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Amelan. we uh, really appreciate your insights. Um, I would now like to share with you some observations from one part of my research on how countries of destination have worked through their official development cooperation programs with diasporas in countries of origin, on development in countries of origin. As you know, many countries of origin have established important policies and structures of diaspora engagement in the last uh, 20 years or so. But relatively few destination countries, many of which are also major donor countries, have sustained programs to assist diaspora populations to contribute to development in their homelands and to learn from diasporas. And this is despite broad acknowledgement of the important role that diasporas can and do play with the adoption of the global compact on migration for migration, where the role of diasporas in development is acknowledged and promoted diaspora engagement seems to be drawing more donor interest. This is a good time therefore, to look at some of the most important ways countries of destination have worked with diasporas in development. I've identified five, support to form or strengthen diaspora organizations, grants to development projects initiated or implemented by diaspora organizations, consultations with diaspora members organizations on development policies and programs, skills circulation, including temporary return of diaspora members uh, to countries of origin and support for diaspora entrepreneurship. And I'd like to say just a word about each of those. When development cooperation agencies in destination countries are convinced that diasporas can play an important role in development, They have found it difficult, they've often found it difficult to identify diaspora partners. They've followed several strategies to resolve this problem. One is to survey the many existing diaspora organizations and decide which ones have a track record of accomplishment and goals that are compatible with those of the development agency. Even before the UK Department for International Development, DFID, was created, the UK government was advised by an extremely capable diaspora organization, the Africa Foundation for Development, (AFORD), and later DFID worked closely with AFORD. Some governments have supported the formation of coalitions to create a single, or at least a more widely representative, voice of the diaspora. One of the most durable of these is the national in platform in France, known as FORIM, which brings together nearly a thousand migrant diaspora organizations that work on development. Forum was created in 2002 with French government funding after years of campaigning by diaspora organizations to be taken seriously as development partners. Top-down government created platforms are likely to have trouble establishing legitimacy and a sense of ownership among diasporas or to have real influence on policies. A more successful strategy for strengthening diaspora organizations is to work with structures that diasporas themselves have created and built. Another way that destination country governments work with diasporas is to fund development projects initiated by diasporas in their countries of origin. Some do it through conventional grants from their development budgets, others through grant competitions, and still others through matching grants. Any of these mechanisms may be administered directly by a government department or through intermediaries. Several governments, including France, Germany, and the UK have established special purpose mechanisms to support diaspora-led projects that are too small for conventional funding streams. Often experience in these small grant programs will um, have uh, allowed diaspora organizations to develop capacities to the point where they can apply for development funding through regular channels. A third way that diaspora countries, uh, that uh, destination countries, sorry, involve diasporas in their development work is through consultative mechanisms. Some are specifically for diasporas, while others include diaspora groups in more general civil society consultations. Some of these consultations are quite specific. For example, last November, the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs invited the African diaspora in Finland to a consultation on Finland's Africa strategy as it was being drawn up. More general consultations include the Swiss civil society platform on migration and development, which involves NGOs, academia, and migrants organizations, such as the African Diaspora Council. In Italy, diaspora members are included in the National Council for Development Cooperation, which is established in Italian law. The Netherlands has organized annual consultations with community-based organizations, particularly from migrant communities. And ongoing consultations with diaspora take place in France through Forum. A fourth mechanism for facilitating diaspora involvement in development that donor governments uh, have supported are programs for skills circulation between destination and origin countries. Several countries, uh, some countries such as Germany, have national skills circulation programs. And several countries partner with the International Organization for Migration in a program called Migration for Development in Africa, which recruits diaspora professionals for assignments to fill skills gaps and train local partners in countries of origin. One of the most successful meetup programs has operated continuously since 2008, bringing members of the Somali diaspora based in Finland to work primarily in the health sector in Somaliland and in Mogadishu. The fifth and final mode I want to mention is support for entrepreneurship. Uh, since job creation is a major concern uh, in development efforts. France, Italy, and Germany all have programs to support entrepreneurs who want to start businesses in their countries of origin, and they are not alone. Even the U.S. Agency for International Development until until 2016 ran a business plan competition for African entrepreneurs called the African Diaspora Marketplace. The Netherlands was one of the pioneers in supporting diaspora entrepreneurship and migration development generally. But in late 2019, the Dutch Minister for Foreign Trade and Development Cooperation wrote to Parliament stating that within her new policy framework, The diaspora is no longer regarded as a distinct target group, neither for collaboration on migration nor for private sector development efforts. The the catalog of diaspora engagement projects and processes is rich, particularly from the early 2000s until about 2016, but it's also notable how many efforts have dwindled or even been abandoned. There's a record of discontinued programs pilot projects that were not scaled up, funding streams that were shut down. Why do diaspora engagement efforts fade? The answer is likely to be different in each country, but part of the answer is surely to be found in politics, including the rise of anti-immigration sentiment in much of Europe and the U.S. after the shock of 2015-2016, and the coming to power of governments in many countries that were less friendly toward immigrant communities. Some policymakers have had unrealistic expectations about diaspora projects, leading to a perception of failure and an unwillingness to take further risks. Another factor is the Difficulty required to identify diaspora partners and overcome the cultural and experiential differences uh, with them. Diaspora groups are often fragmented or highly politicized. In many cases, they have little experience in the ways of official development assistance and are too small or informal to qualify for formal partnership with government development institutions. But despite the many challenges, a small group of champions have stood firmly in their treatment of diasporas as development partners. Switzerland, Germany, and France stand out for their broad and longstanding involvement with diaspora groups. They illustrate the importance of maintaining a serious engagement over a long period. All have learned from experience that the advantages of supporting working with and learning from diasporas makes it more likely that the goals of their national development cooperation programs will be successful. Thank you. The other ingredient that's been missing from discussions about the role of diasporas in development is the relationship between integration in the destination country and diasporas contributions to development in their countries of origin. The Peace Research Institute of Oslo-PRIO has taken a deep dive into this question, and Marta Bivan-Erdal is going to walk us through the key observations of their work. Marta has many years of research and analysis on migration and development behind her, and we're looking forward to your presentation. You have the
2: floor, Marta. So thanks for the opportunity to to join this webinar and to present our work. This is work which is um, co-authored and co-produced with good colleagues here at Prio, Jörgen Karling, Cindy Horst, and Matthias hattles gorg uh, And has been mentioned already what I'll be presenting very briefly now. You can find all of the content in these two reports. It's one, one policy paper and one policy brief. Uh, they are online and available as Kathleen already mentioned. Uh, and I will go through only some parts of what we're discussing in more depth there. So if you are interested, I'd encourage you to have a look at those uh, for more details. So the questions that uh, we're diving into in these reports are these. How does integration in the country of settlement matter for diaspora members' development engagements in the global south? And how has this intersection been addressed in policy and practice? And these questions have been posed, uh, I think for good reason. And they were posed uh, in this context to us also by the Ministry of Education and Research, which we produce these uh, papers for. Uh, And these papers also intersect very much with ongoing research at PRIO in in projects that we are running now, and also in projects that we've been doing in the past as well. So we were very appreciative uh, of being able to do this research and connect these questions also in this context. And indeed, as I'll come back to, uh, there seems to be a lacuna in terms of actually connecting these things, which is puzzling, because migration is so much on the radar, both in terms of connections between migration, perhaps management and development, and integration concerns. So how come these are not connected more? So in the paper, we try to take a step back and look at mechanisms that link integration in countries of settlement with development in countries of origin. So rather than starting with with policy practices or what has been done in a way, which I think Kathleen has has spoken to already to an extent, we take a further step back. Uh, And I think what we try to do here is to really consider what we know to be very many migrants' life worlds, uh, which are, both here and there. So for very many migrants, both the integration in countries of settlement and the development in countries of origin aspects somehow speak to their everyday experiences, to their family connections, to their everyday lives quite simply. I'm not going into <laughs> going to go into definitions about what we mean by integration or development. Of course these can be contested terms. Uh, feel free to to dive into our papers if you're interested in in how we how we approach those terms. What I would like to point your attention towards though is the specific activities that you can see in the middle of the figure here. So what we do in this report is that we try to sort of think about how is it exactly that migrants uh, actually contribute to development in countries of origin. And the specific things that we have listed are a list based on, on, on our review of existing work on our own research experience. Having followed this field for a long time, I'm sure that list could be tweaked or added to by others as well. I'd welcome comments on that. But what we focused on is remittance sending, entrepreneurship, which has already been mentioned, return migration, circulation and temporary stays. Again, this has been mentioned already. Transfers of norms and values, voting and activism. I know there are people in the panel who can speak to this as well. Civil society led initiatives and participation in official development aid, which again has already been discussed. And so for each of these in the paper, we try to go through taking the example of remittances. How can remittances contribute to development? What influences the development impact of remittances? What affects diaspora members' inclination to send remittances? And what are the possible effects of remittances or remittance sending on integration? And so then we take all of these specific activities that I mentioned and try and run through, what do we know about these? What are kind of plausible links that could be made? Uh, And again, here, there is some research. Uh, Many places, maybe there isn't quite sufficient research because those connections haven't really been made in the research that we have. But still, I think you know, largely there are some assumptions here that I think we can, we can work with. So then moving to what we actually can say from the research that re- exists on diaspora development integration links. And I think also following from what Kathleen has already said and what I've alluded to, there isn't that much research on these links, right? But there is a lot of research that sort of speaks to them in different kinds of ways. And that's what we've tried to review. If we only tried to review those that specifically target these links, that list is quite short. If you're interested again, that list is actually in the paper as well. So which which six things does does research tell us about diaspora development and integration links? First of all, integration matters. Second, integration processes and transnational engagements are not a zero-sum game. Migration and migrants' contributions are relevant to development processes in countries of origin. There is potential for greater conceptual clarity, both in um, research and in policy and in practice, I'd like to stress about what we mean when we say development and what we mean when we say integration. Now, integration and development links are set within interpersonal relationships. And I think this is best illustrated perhaps if we think of remittances, which I think most of us will, will automatically understand what are. These are private funds, private transfers that are very familial, very personal. And so this is a good lens through which often to understand different types of mechanisms through which integration and development are connected. And perhaps perhaps a little bit of a sort of unusual twist as compared to the more usual focus on the sort of official development aid collaboration in sort of grants that we support with. That's part of the the picture. We're suggesting there's another part of the picture which we're often missing. Finally, and I think this is important to acknowledge, and I think it's one of the reasons why perhaps this this field has not received very much attention. I think we argue basically that that mutually integration and uh, development are secondary factors to each other. So what we mean by that is that for migrants successful integration in the country of settlement, so leading a a good life, not experiencing discrimination or inequality as compared to others, et cetera, their development contributions to a society of origin are really not that central. And probably the same could be said the other way around. And so they are relevant and they matter and they are important, but if you kind of prioritize what's the key most important thing for successful integration of migrants, their contributions to development in the country of origin is not gonna be on the sort of top two, three list. And we suggest probably that's why uh, this has not received as much attention as it perhaps could. So coming back to this figure again then, uh, I think as the state secretary also mentioned, we do have policies. Uh, and we try to also run through a little bit in the paper, what kind of policies and other factors actually have an impact in terms of these mechanisms and, and links. And I think, again, there's been a lot of attention to participation in official development aid for good reason. I'm sure we need to continue speaking of that as well. Remittance sending is also very much on on the radar. As we know, in the sustainable development goals as well, uh, there's a lot of focus on on the remittance uh, transfer costs for good reason. This is a very uh, clear area where improvements can be made, which actually make a huge difference, both on the integration and development front. And then there's the issue of circulation uh, and temporary stays, which I think, Um, points to some of the areas where there are tensions, potentially conflicts of interest between policy areas, because we know that it it might be good for development impacts that migrants can contribute to, that they can have temporary stays. However, in terms of applying for citizenship, say, in the country of settlement, which we know relates strongly to integration, having a lot of temporary stays abroad actually is an impediment. So here, there are some potential frictions and tensions, which may well be unintended because these are separate policy fields. That would be one reading of it, but they still matter and they still could actually have um, unintended consequences for what we're able to do here. So then coming to the conclusion, in terms of the sort of intersections with policy and practice, we think that there are three objectives uh, through which we could look at this. First, is a need to recognize and value existing initiatives, for instance, such as remittances, and doing so can have positive effects on development and integration outcomes via the mechanism of recognition. And as I alluded to, there's a point here about avoiding obstructing diaspora members' development engagements through unwarranted suspicion of transnational connections or creating different types of formalized barriers, which will very often not be in the field of diaspora development at all, but quite somewhere else. And then there's this point about supporting the existing initiatives that are there, because we know that the engage in development policy or not, so it's there. And then the question is, do we choose to relate to that or not? Then I think a point which is recognizable, there is still a need to promote diversity in the development sector, and this should be strengthened, which has already been alluded to. And policy dialogue and coordination between relevant ministries and directorates is necessary. And the final recommendations that we have are quite on the sort of nitty gritty level, I'd say. Uh, and they are based on the Norwegian experience, uh, but they also, I think, reflect experiences from quite a number of different countries. But I'd be interested to hear comments on that as well. And these are first establishing cross-cutting for our communication channels that help prevent segmentation and policy incoherence. This is critically needed if we are to make any advances in the field of linking integration and development. Identifying implications of policy developments in one field for outcomes in others, and ensuring that these are addressed at an early stage. And we'd go as far as saying, this is actually about doing no harm. And then quite a detailed and specific point, I think, but an observation we've had, at least in the Norwegian context. There are important uh, bureaucrats, policymakers who play a big role and who matter. But of course, people change jobs. And in some ministries and directors, there's a lot of turnover. And very often this specific issue of the connections between diaspora integration and the development of efforts in countries of origin comes down to dedicated individuals who do an excellent job in different bureaucracies. But a consistent policy shouldn't really rely on that kind of individual uh, engagement and commitment only. I'll stop there. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Marta, for that and very challenging set of observations. Uh, We really appreciate that. Um, We're now going to turn to Jibril Fall. Jibril, you're a businessman, a serial policy entrepreneur, a teacher, and a diaspora leader with roots in the Gambia. You've collaborated with many development agencies and international institutions and processes. And we're grateful to you for sharing your perspective on how they can successfully work with diasporas.
3: Thank you very much, um, Kathleen. And the points that you made and the points that Martha made are very much in line with my experience in terms of policy and practice of diaspora development. About 20 years, in the mid 1990s, a thought which you mentioned, the African Foundation for Development, was very big on making the point of what they call here and there, a phrase that I've heard Martha use as well, indicating that the way the diaspora are situated in their country of residence very much affects their contribution in the country of origin or heritage. And about 20 years ago, I came across, we were involved with a study conducted by the Open University, which in the United Kingdom based in Milton Keynes. And they were talking, working with the Ghanaian diaspora in Milton Keynes. There's a big Ghanaian diaspora in Milton Keynes to understand how they contribute to diaspora development. One rather obscure observation they had caught my imagination, from which I developed a sort of framework on how to look at the conceptual and practical basis of diaspora contribution. What they found amongst the Ghanaian diaspora in Milton Keynes was that very many people indicated that part of the reason they continue to contribute to development in their original village was that they would like for when they are dead, they would like their bodies to be repatriated and for them to be buried. In their village. The Akan people of Ghana, as I tend to tease them, that sometimes I think they're more interested in death than in life, given the anthropology of uh, their funerary rites. But come to think about it, it occurred to me that the diaspora conceptually contribute at two main levels. One, is through the actual possibility and aspiration for what I call active contribution, active return. They return in person, they return through their finances, they return to their skills, very, very active. But also there is a strong element of passive return whereby their resources and their connections and their knowledge is contributed, but in a more diffusive and passive manner. And of course, based on that analogy, your body being returned back to your village, one would say, is the most passive of returns. On the face of it, yes, but in reality, no. Because even then, when your body is returned, that is a little bit of active participation because it creates the link with the multi generation in case your children will return to see where you're buried, and all of that connection. on. So it's a fascinating background in terms of why the diaspora contribute. Now, and how it links to where they are situated. We've heard from both your contributions about the practical ways in which they do this, through um, remittances, through investment in financial products, and generally diaspora portfolio investment. Then there are the most more active ones like investment in enterprises, diaspora direct investment, and how they stimulate general um, increase in the macro economy of the country of region through increasing the multiplier effect. Then you have the bid on skills and aptitudes, how new technology, particularly the technology entrepreneurs. Um, overwhelmingly come from the diaspora who go back and invest in new technologies. Given all of that, what is it that governments and policymakers need to consider to ensure enduring integration? I would mention briefly five things that I think are relevant. Number one is legal status. The question of regularity, whether somebody has legal status in the country, is considered something away from development, but it is not. Because regularity gives a degree of certainty and predictability, and therefore life planning of the individual migrant. And then they are able to do better in the country they're based in and so contribute better in their country of origin. Second is access the issue of discrimination in the countries of residence and how that affect life chances, for example, access to jobs. So the better job you have, the more stable job you have, the more income you have allows you to contribute more. So again, the general big issue of discrimination is not linked to diaspora integration and contribution to development. The third one is a links to what I call the friends of the diaspora So the migrants and diaspora, the more settled and integrated they are in a country, the more they develop social capital within the wider population in that country. And it is through this connection of friends of the diaspora that they would amplify and expand the contribution they make. And that is evidenced through the diaspora entrepreneurs, usually finding partners, from the community, the um, original community, as partners in business. Then the fourth one is, the governments need to um, conceptualize and accept and understand and accept that the role of the di- their diaspora to international development is part of the national effort. So diaspora in no way contributing to Somali development is not isolated to Somalian diaspora and Somalian country. It is part of Norway's contribution to international development because the resources, the peace and all of the things that the diaspora have to allow them make that contribution is to a great degree linked to the fact that they are resident, working and settled in Norway. And finally, The governments, of course, have their own initiatives of international cooperation. They also need not see this as being distinct and separate from diaspora action. It is part of the bigger effort, only that they need to bring into diaspora have a substantive input in that process. But these last two points, that is diaspora's direct contribution and the country's official, departmental or minister contributions, that these are part of one, need to be understood and accepted by governments before you move to the next step. And the next step is what I call embedding and entrenchment. And Martha made a point, and I think Catherine, you also made a point about the irregularity and stability of diaspora engagement. There's a lot of start, stop. And that will continue to happen unless the governments do two things. That is that diaspora contribution needs to be embedded and entrenched. If that is accepted, governments are very, very capable of doing that. For example, governments accept that human rights or equality between sexes in terms of pay, that these things need to be embedded and entrenched. So there's clear policy and practice to do it. How much one succeeds or fails, it's a question of operation. But in terms of methodology, governments have the methodology, know how to do it. But they need to accept that relating to diaspora development and adopt it. And finally, Kathleen, you made five recommendations and comments, which I endorse all of them. But I raise a question on one your fourth one, the one on consultation. I observe a lot about what I've called consultation fatigue amongst the diaspora, because there's at least 20 years of consultation on very many of these topics. So I think that consultation perhaps can be upgraded to program participation, whereby you would still consult to know what's happening, but it's directly linked to something practical. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you, Jabril, for those uh, really very um, insightful comments. And we know they're based on uh, long and and deep uh, experience. Um, I turn now to Kristin Velure-Strom from Caritas Norway, Kristen, you've worked for UNHCR, for IOM, and for the Red Cross. And as a senior advisor to Caritas, your work involves immigrants and refugees in Norway, as well as development and humanitarian work overseas. Uh, I'd really love to hear your observations about these intersections. Over to you
4: uh yeah hello and first of all thank you very much for the inv- invitation to participate here today it's a truly important and interesting webinar and um, and first for those who are not familiar with caritas we're the humanitarian aid organization of the catholic church uh, and thus we're also part of a large international network with a presence in more than 160 countries and we work on issues of migration and integration nationally as well as development projects internationally and based on our experience the link between diaspora integration and development is often overlooked as has been already well illustrated here today we we also believe that there is a lot to gain by exploring new ways of involving diaspora communities so we very much welcome this debate uh, our integration activities in Norway are, large, are largely run by volunteers. And in Caritas, Norway, about 70% of our volunteers have immigrant or minority background, which is quite unusual in the Norwegian context. And many of our volunteers are well integrated, but many also have quite relatively or relatively newly arrived in Norway, and they use volunteering as means of integration so they get work experience and then they use this work experience as a stepping stone into ordinary work and that is something that we also actively encourage Um, we cooperate with several diaspora or immigrant organizations in our integration projects many of these especially those who are you might say more country specific, for instance, the Somali Norwegian organization we work with are strongly engaged in societal and integration issues in Norway, as well as issues related to their country of origin. And from our experience, active involvement from diaspora members often comes from a position you might say of surplus capacity, that they feel that they have something to contribute with. As an example, one of our volunteers with a Somali background recently came to me to discuss possibilities for her to work internationally. She's born in Norway, well-integrated, works as, as a nurse at a Norwegian hospital, but then volunteering at Caritas had made her realize that she also wanted to contribute internationally. So we believe that skill circulation or rotation schemes as, as seen in Germany also in in a Norwegian context, can mobilize diaspora groups. And double citizenship, that Norway relatively recently opened for, also facilitates uh, facilitates this form of circular migration that makes it easier for diaspora communities to contribute in their countries of origin. And in Caritas, we've had several diaspora Um, communities involved in international um, uh, projects um, such as a joint project with the Sri Lankan diaspora organization, cooperation with different Vietnamese diaspora groups and also a current project um, on the peace process in Colombia where the main aim is to involve Colombian diaspora in Norway specifically. And based on our experience, there is a lot of unused potential knowledge and skills among diaspora groups. And these bottom-up initiatives from diaspora groups can create a strong sense of commitment and accountability in the communities. Um, However, we also see challenges, and, and that's important to also take into as part of this discussion, that... Um, Some diaspora organisations do not have the administrative competence or capacity to to run or to co-run development projects. Some are strongly linked to certain ethnic groups or political interests. And some members of the diaspora have been in Norway for so long that they don't actually sort of have the necessary local knowledge needed. That's, of course, not to say that diaspora organizations are not relevant, because on the contrary, they're highly relevant, but these challenges also need to be addressed. And from our perspective, active involvement of diaspora groups, both from governmental agencies and humanitarian organizations, is important. So, of course, is capacity building. It's not necessarily so that the resources from diaspora communities always are best channeled through separate diaspora organizations. And diaspora members should also have a stronger position within the more established development organizations. Um, In this regard, development organizations, at least in Norway, have quite a long way to go. Uh, Last year, a Norwegian development magazine on Vistandsaktuell conducted a survey on staff diversity among humanitarian or development organizations in Norway. And perhaps not surprisingly, most organizations mainly had employees with Norwegian or Western backgrounds. And Caritas was actually the only organization with a secretary general from a developing country. So we need initiatives that aim to increase recruitment among diaspora groups. And this should also target second and and, and third generation immigrants, where many are highly skilled, have relevant language and cultural skills, and their involvement is often more humanitarian than, than political. And as the final remark, I'm almost done now, we believe that increased diaspora involvement can be an important driver for development. However, this requires more political priority, funding, and as has been said as well, a more intersectional approach, including the private sector and the involvement of several ministries, such as the foreign ministry and the Ministry of Trade and Industries. And we believe that, that this work is mutually reinforcing with integration objectives, because a more holistic approach to diaspora involvement in the development field, can also positively interplay with integration processes in Norway, as it sends positive signals to migrant communities that their backgrounds and resources are valued, which for many migrants today, unfortunately, unfortunately is not quite the case. Thank you.
0: And thank you, Kristin, for... uh, uh Perspective that not only marries the integration and development aspects, but it was also very practical, um, and uh, we appreciate that. Uh, and thanks to all our panelists who are now uh, ready to address uh, your your questions. We have uh, about uh, only about ten minutes left to the uh, till the end of the hour. Um, we might uh, go over just a bit to uh, answer the uh, questions that have already been. Uh, place to the panelists. Uh, So let me just uh, start in with some of them. Um, uh, The the first one that I have, I think is is probably one for you, Kristen, which is how diaspora contributions might be seen by host societies. Some native-born people might See a close engagement with countries of origin as a sign of a lack of integration, and um, this questioner wondered if you had any observations about that.
4: Thank you. Yeah. Um, and in terms of in terms of the the Norwegian population, or sort of the the native population, if you might say that it's um. This is not a topic that is much on the agenda or that has been discussed in, in much detail sort of in sort of a broader political debate on uh, in terms of migration or integration. And I guess um, there is also quite um, it, it might easily be interpreted that if that migrants settled in Norway have too much of a focus, on their country of origin and their background, that they're not focused on their integration process in Norway. So clearly there is a need for more debate about also that sort of possible um, or that strengthening link between integration and and involvement in country of origin. Yes,
0: and I think uh, think as you pointed out also that um, involvement with a diaspora organization to a broader involvement in civil society um, through caritas for example through your volunteers as you pointed out so yeah. it, it works uh, it works both ways
4: yeah um, and just Sorry, could I mention very briefly there? Because actually, the, the Im- immigrant organizations or the diaspora organizations have been given sort of more of a focus now during the corona pandemic. Because, and, and to many, in many ways, you could say they've been incremental to the government's pandemic response because they've worked actively on outreach and with um, towards uh, vulnerable migrant groups with information and also assistance.
0: Okay. yes, thanks very much. That's very, very relevant. Um, a question for you, Marta. Um, how much does remittance sending contribute to inequality in the countries of origin? Is that, uh, it's a little bit outside of our discussion today, but uh, based on your prior work, I expect you have some observations there.
2: Thanks Kathleen. I think you know it's, it's an important concern. And, and I think the research we have, First of all, some of it is very much macro level at the national level, some of it's very micro. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that it's a little bit inconclusive. But of course, having a hunch that when some people have a migrant abroad and they receive a lot of remittances and their neighbors don't have a migrant abroad and don't receive a lot of remittances, that this can at the micro level lead to increasing inequalities, I think is a very sort of sensible hunch to have. So there's clearly some, some merit to this question. I think what the data tells us to the extent that it is conclusive, and I'm not sure it is, but to the extent that it is, is that there seems to be a development over time where remittances become more uh, pro-poor over time. So as migration becomes more common and maybe more broader sections of the population actually migrate, then it becomes less less driving of inequalities. At the national level, it's very complicated, I think, to sort of isolate the effect of this on inequality because what are also the other effects of, of migration? I think it's an important uh, question and i think it's an important question also in terms of who is it that actually sends remittances and how much do they send among migrants and then we can maybe turn it back to to the topic of conversation in terms of migrants income levels their job security in countries of settlement and in questions of integration and whether migrants resources and competences are being used in an adequate way in societies of settlement which may lead them then to have higher income levels and be able to send more and maybe also distribute remittances more broadly in their communities of origin. Of course, they send remittances mainly to their loved ones. We also know that a lot of migrants send remittances much broader than that. So we have collective engagements, of course, but also more in the, at the neighborhood level or, you know, your neighbor's daughter who became a widow and then you support that family as well. So I think there's a sort of invisible distribution effect potentially that we're not really seeing and where I think the integration aspect actually does matter because you know, the, the better better off you are, the chan- the greater the chances that you are able to support uh, more people also through your remittances.
0: I think there's also a generational element there was as people become uh, more distant chronologically and generationally from their country of origin, their engagement may change to one that's more generally sort of philanthropic or um, not, not so much family-based uh, but more Uh, uh, based on uh, assisting development in the larger society. Thanks, Marta. Jibril, there's a sort of two-part question observation, which I think you'd be well-placed to address. Um, One part of it is the question of, should we be making more of a distinction between migration and diasporas uh, between, in other words, between arriving people who are arriving and people who are settled in uh, the country of destination, um, they're obviously related but not identical. And um, the the second part of that uh, observation was that um, was in terms of um, the struggle for impact from diaspora. Um, projects which are often you know very short term. And um, are we are we sort of lacking a long-term vision of the role of diasporas in development? Are we being sort of courageous and confident enough about articulating what their role is? And uh, maybe in response to that you might reflect a little on your own experience with the Gambia. Yes, role?
3: so all all migrants are part of the diaspora, but not all diaspora are migrants because the diaspora includes second, third, multi-generation who have never migrated. They were born in the country they are. So the distinction is technically important. In terms of their contribution to development, it becomes less important. But the distinction, I think, is structurally important to do that. Now, relating to the struggle for impact, yes, it is true that we mention all of the stop-start, but there is a positive continuity and consistency. That is the diaspora never lets go. So whether they have the means or they don't have the means, they still contribute. So the commitment, the persistence to contribute is always there, even when things are extremely difficult for them. So that's a solid base on which development partners can come in, not only to support um, scaling up and bigger impact, but also to help stop this policy um, situation of a lot of stop and start happening. So that would be my observation.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, there's an additional question, which I, which I think I might take on, which is uh, what uh, if any impact role have policies for allowing circular migration, played in uh, promoting development initiatives in countries of origin. And I think this is something that Kristen uh, alluded to. Um, uh, For one thing, dual citizenship is key here because it allows people to circulate very freely between the countries in which they hold citizenship, at least when there isn't a global pandemic going on. Um, But I think that, such research as we have on circular, such data as we have on circular migration show that um, people who are able easily to easily move back and forth uh, are the ones who find it uh, uh, easiest to start and run businesses, for example, in a country of origin, or to return as an expert and teach a course or uh, run a laboratory, or uh, or some such, and uh, without uh, without dual citizenship, it be, can become, or at least permanent residency, it, beca- it can become uh, more cumbersome for members of a diaspora to regularly visit their countries of origin and and actively participate in person in development organizations. Um, I have I note that we have. We have reached um, the end of the hour, and I apologize that there still are some comments or questions that we have not been able to get to. But I do want to really thank all of our panelists. I'm sorry the state secretary was not able to join us for the Q&A, but uh, to all of to him and to all of you, I want to thank you for a, a terrifically um, important. Um, and insightful conversation. I hope that we'll continue that conversation and uh, you see on the screen before you now, the resources that you can follow up with um, at both PRIO and MPI. Um, And uh, this, uh, the the recording from this uh, webinar will be available on the MPI website. from tomorrow and uh, we look forward to further engaging with you and with members of the audience uh, to continue working on this important topic. Many thanks and be well.